Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Razzle Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. time of day to everyone whatever time zone you're in wherever you're listening however you're listening this is episode number 123 of americans watching the footy i am ethan castle coming to you from the atlanta suburb of alpharetta georgia and i am benjamin castle coming to you from the san francisco suburb of south san francisco california which is not directly south of san francisco it's complicated but this is the round 20 recap or i guess the rip my tips round recap Holy cow. Um, yeah, you know how round 19, there was a lot of excitement, but we got where we thought we'd end up just in interesting ways. Yeah, you called it the uh, road trip round for that reason. This one was not like there was drama. There were tons of unexpected results, tons of upsets. Uh, let's see, my tipping, and I'm not even going to count one of the games correctly because I do that just as a superstition thing. Uh, I got three correct, like in terms of who I actually thought I got two. I got two of the Sundays, but I almost switched both the early Saturdays to get four, and I regret now not pulling the trigger. All right. Uh, I guess we're basically ready to just get into this, yeah? Yeah, let's do it with Friday Night Footy, Collingwood 10-16-76, defeated by Carlton 14-9-93 in front of a crowd of 86,785, the third highest crowd in the AFL this season. Tremendous atmosphere was to be expected. The result, anything but. Carlton grabbed command of the game in the second quarter and never relinquished it. Great pressure from the beginning. Reversed through the midfield really well. And Charlie Curnow, a week after kicking 10, he kicked six on a much tougher matchup against tougher opposition in general. I mean, we've seen some players be able to victimize Darcy Moore a bit one-on-one, but not as clinically as Kerno did. Yeah, he was great. There was never really a moment where you felt, oh shit, here comes that Collingwood comeback machine that we've grown so accustomed to. Carlton were just really fucking good in this game. Jacob Wiedering, Nick Newman doing their thing. The guy who really stood out to me, well, there are two. First off, Ollie Holland, who you want to get in the good graces of your fan base, play well against your biggest rival, and get into it with one of their most hated players, one of their biggest antagonizers. Like, if you ask anyone who's your least favorite Collingwood player, probably some mix of Braden Mannard or Jordan Degoe. Maybe a few would say Mason, but Hollins took Mannard on and played him pretty well and just totally played up to the atmosphere. And then the other guy who I really liked was Jack Martin, whose numbers weren't anything special, but he created so much chaos for the other forwards to profit off of, which is something that Bobby Hill frequently does for Collingwood. And he was out sick. And I think you really noticed his his absence in this game. You know, towards the end of the game, it was funny. Um, 
BT saying, you know, how they beat this false strengths Collingwood team. It's like, not quite. They were missing Bobby Hill. It was important. Still, I mean, a, a great win, obviously. But you, you see the importance of Hill's absence. I also thought Jack Crisp just kind of looked a little old in this game. I think he could be having a little bit of a Cal Ripken situation where it's like, you might be, you you might perform better if you take a couple games off. But they won't make the buck, but they won't jeopardize that streak. Yeah. And he'll probably have to be the one to end it of his own accord. He picked up 20 disposals in this game, but I wasn't as fond of him. Usually you expect him to be one of those most, most important players running through the middle. And I just didn't see it from him in this game. But going back to the other Jack that you mentioned, Jack Martin, there's no coincidence that he's played in five of their recent wins. They're five and one since he returned in round 13. He's 5-1-1 one one on the season, and I think his presence has helped the Blues realize, okay, wait a minute, there are other forward pieces here. We can target them. We don't have to constantly be going to the talls, and Martin's presence and play style have played into their own hands, and the Blues have really returned to what they did to start last season with much more fluid movement, even with a banged-up midfield. They lost Adam Chair to a hamstring injury in this game. He's out two to three weeks, but that didn't slow him down. He had Martin pushing up at times to be a bit off the center square. He and Jesse Motlop had some good connections there. Really, that Martin to Motlop handball off the ground. That was a moment where I really think game was called. As I've said, I really like Jesse Motlop. I know he's not a completely polished player yet, but he's so entertaining, and you can see how high the potential is. One second, the cat's outside. He won't be able to hear you. I got my earbuds. Ryan. I got you. Come on in, buddy. I miss Baraboo. Three seconds, Brian. I miss my Baraboo. Did he come in? He has a new hiding spot, by the way. Yeah? Uh, underneath my bookcase. Cool. Surprised you can sit down there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, my what are we talking about here? Uh, Jack Martin, Jesse Motlop, Carlton Binfield. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pick up then. Grind. Hey, Grind, if you're, if you're going to be in here, you're going to be caught. Did not expect the Carlton Midfield to out play the pies there throughout the game and it was from rebound that they showed their biggest strengths Collingwood has been this great counter-attacking team all year using numbers and speed to their advantage but the Blues not only prevented Collingwood from playing that way cutting off a lot of their transitions but they ended up getting better passages because of that as well Collingwood almost expected to get out so much at times that they had so many numbers downfield that it left the Blues with numbers and advantages going back their way and they exploited nearly every opportunity with that. It's a totally different approach than how Melbourne beat Collingwood back at the uh, Kingsborough. Really, we've seen three different. Actually, I think it's more in tune with uh, what we saw on Holy Thursday from the Lions at the Gabba. I don't think Collingwood need to panic from this game, and I don't think they will. I think, you know, one or two changes. Unfortunately, Mason could be a casualty there. You know, it would be kind of weird for that to happen right after getting an extension. That's one of the reasons I think he might stay in there. And he is obviously one of Fly's guys to begin with, but at the same time, a couple down games in a row and Billy Frampton waiting there in the reserves. I think Frampton will get a crack at it this coming week against Hawthorne. Um, I gotta say, the visuals of Mason sitting on the bench looking just pissed at everybody after he got subbed out need to be memed because they were pretty... Oh, uh, don't worry. They already have been. Just the combination of his expression and his stature make for extremely funny scenes, and he will end up being able to laugh at it as well. Oh, yeah, he 
that's something I don't worry about. There are some players who I don't see being able to laugh at themselves, as I may get into later, Dane Zorko is one of those types. But Mason's one who will instantly get the humor in that and probably already has. To give you a sense of the flow of this game, if you missed it, Collingwood had the first two goals and looked pretty dominant. Carlton evened it up from there, ended up being a pretty tight first quarter. They went into half up by 17 and got the lead out to as much as 36 early in the fourth. When it was an 18-point game early in the fourth, it was like, all right, Collingwood going to do it. And I, you know, I think we talked about the difference between like how 17 is such a dangerous lead, and in this case, it was 19 after three. They did have a couple chances early in the fourth, but Brody Majek missed after a hail of Marchbank deliberate rush behind, and then Carlton got the next three, and that was really it. One, one adjustment that Collingwood made late that could pay off moving forward, they brought Jeremy Howe forward. He kicked three goals, like bang, bang, bang. Yeah, Howe has, yeah, I'm not sure if we realize it, but Howe had started his career as a forward and kicked his, and had his first multi-goal game in over seven years and his first three-goal game in over eight. That actually came against Collingwood in his last year for Melbourne. He was traded in the winter of, he was traded in the spring of 2015. So having Howe as a potential swingman could, I mean, it could complicate the case between Cox and Frampton, but it allows for a little more flexibility, honestly, in defense to maybe keep Frampton back there at times as an interceptor. And so I think all this kind of does play into Frampton's return. So fair to say he was not, though, the most shocking defender to move forward, kick a bunch of goals. That's, I think we have someone much more prolific in that regard this time. Spoiler alert. Yeah, this, I'm not ready to guarantee that Carlton are a finalist because not just what they did last year, because it's still crowded, but this does a lot for their chances. I think it's more likely than not that they have the finals route this year, which is all the more amazing considering the injuries they have. No Harry McKay, no Adam Terraper, the next few. Big Sunday national TV game against the Saints coming up this coming week at Marvel. Then they host Melbourne round 22. They go to the Gold Coast round 23. They've had trouble with that matchup a bit in the past. And then round 24, I really think that Giants game might be the last game of the home and away season. And I'm thinking that more and more with each passing week. Yeah, especially because usually the marquee Sutton game would, you know, you'd think it would be like Collingwood Essendon or maybe Richmond and Port, depending on what's at stake. Yeah, it's something that really brings in the viewers and GWS, as fun as they've been, probably don't do that quite as much. But if these are two of the teams fighting for those last spots, as they may be at that point, or maybe there's a chance that they rematch again in two weeks' time, then I can totally see it. Yeah, the Blues are, um, they're in seventh. Yeah. Again, the lids. I'm worried about the lids. There are still lids. There are, they're just not attached. Daniel Gorringe may pull something out of the Chicago White Sox playbook from 1979 and have a lid demolition night if the Blues win this next week. I would be so here for that. I think it would be funnier, though, if it was just lid removal night and it was just Everyone brings a bunch of like Tupperware containers and just take the lids off. And that's it. And then everyone just goes up. The lid, Patrick. Uh, staff leaders for Carlson in this game. Nick Newman added again. 27 disposals, 10 marks, 9 intercepts, 7 tackles. Blake Akers a behind in 23 disposals. Patrick Cripps, a totally different type of game than how he had a success last year, but one that I really enjoyed. 20 disposals, 
and an octopus. Jacob Wietering, 18 disposals, 11 marks, 10 intercepts, 100% time on ground. And Charlie Kernow, six goals straight from 15 disposals. The Blues won clearances, 41-31, including 28-19 in stoppages. Collingwood did beat them in marks inside 50, 18-10, but couldn't cash in. I mean, the, the Pies did have three more scoring shots, but I don't think it was just an accuracy that cost them this game. I think it's a better team won this game. I agree completely. And also, you know, the marching for marks inside 50 can also be attributed to Charlie Curnell being a player to get a lot of frees. And the four frees that he got that led to goals were all reasonable. There was one that may have been 50-50, but at least three of them were no-brainers there. And Nick Newman looking pretty good as a uh, sleeper pick for me this year. Hello, Newman. When I've had noticed Newman's game in the past, one of the things that he'd been better at and where the Blues had succeeded with him in there was strong kicking, really anywhere in the middle half of the ground, longer kicks that start off scores. And that's been one of his biggest strengths as of late. And he was the highest ranking player on the ground at this game. I do want to mention one umpiring thing. The dissent 50 given to Brody Kemp. I mean, what the fuck? Telling the umpire, politely might I add, to look at the scoreboard to see a replay that he missed the call. That's something that's been clamped down all throughout the league this year. I wasn't surprised. As soon as I saw the points, just like, oh, really? It, it's it's a matter of... It is soft, but it's something that's been penalized all year. There were a bunch of early 50s in this game. That, especially in a game as intense as this, I, I was surprised that it was umpired so tightly to start, definitely. I mean, you kind of want to, like, establish a standard early, but yeah, it was it was out. It was to the point where the umpires wanted their authority respected so much that it completely backfired. Surprise, surprise, Nick Dacos led Collingwood in their possession totals with 28 disposals and nine score involvements. He was criticized for some sort of selfish moments where he possessed in less ideal opportunities. I think that'll be a clear lesson learned for him, and I, I don't think it's something that Collingwood fans should be worried about too much. His brother Josh scored a goal from 27 disposals. Jordan DeGoey scored a goal from 25. Raiden Maynard, a, a point from 22 disposals at 559 meters gained. John Noble with 22 and 7 tackles. He's a player that we'd both really taken a liking to last year and was important again in some of the intensity in this rivalry. Darcy Moore had 10 intercept possessions, but really, I leave this game thinking mostly for the pies about Jeremy Howard, how he could be used going forward, kicking three straight after being swung forward late from 17 disposals and 10 marks and nine score moments. We know that he's a strong mark. We know that he can elevate. This could really work for him late. I think most likely just knowing them, knowing how they've been the last couple years, I think they'll get more out of this loss than a lot of teams would. I mean, obviously, you want to beat your biggest rival. Losing sucks. But I think they'll be able to swing this into a positive and... I wouldn't be shocked if they don't lose again. That set at the same time, well, they're not as impervious as we thought. And I saw a couple stats a couple weeks ago about like how they've scored a lot more from their shots than expected throughout the year, and their opponents have done the opposite. So the gap between them and everyone else on a normal day is not that big. It's that they just do winning things. I really think they're going to take out their anger this week, big time against the. I think they're still. Easily the most likely pick to win the whole thing. But I, I see I see ways for a whole bunch of other teams. You can convince me a lot of different teams with play. The Cats are not one of those teams. They're only in ninth, but ouch. 
Geelong 9-10-64 defeated by Fremantle 10-11-71. What the fuck? I I understand that Frio, I think Cardinia's dimensions fit them well. This was really a perfect storm of team plays flat, bad game plan, a couple shocking errors from some of their best players, a couple key injuries as well, particularly to Mark Blitzovs in the first half. If you told me to watch this game without any knowledge of who was playing for a final spot and whose season is over, you would have thought 3-0 was the team that had something on the line because they outworked the Cats all fucking game, especially on ground balls. It wasn't until like late in the third, early in the fourth, that Geelong got something there, powered by Tanner Broon. Uh, Broon, by the way, he's been showing these signs that I think he's a year or two away from really breaking out, where he'll go for a few minutes where he's just the best player out there, but it's only like, you know, a 10, 15 minute stretch. If at some point he starts doing this for an entire game, it's going to be pretty fun. I took issue with the game plan really from list selection when I saw, when we saw a couple of glaring things. Firstly, Mitch Nevitt not included once again, and then Mark O'Connor as a sub. And then once he was subbed on, he didn't put the tag on Caleb Sarong that was necessary. And you wonder why Sarong had 29 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 7 clearances, and 23 Geelong players keychains in his pocket when he arrived home. I don't know how they fucked up the game plan this badly. Like, there are two elements to a game plan for each week that you contort to an opponent. Take away their strengths and exploit their weaknesses. Over two. You need to stop Caleb Saron from getting clearances and contested possessions, and you need to target their weaker defenders that haven't been able to stop anyone, and instead, look, at the start of the game, fine, go after Alex Pierce. He's not having a good season, but he actually played pretty well in this game. Yeah, he outworked Jeremy Cameron. And yes, Cameron obviously didn't help with some of his errors, including kicking one goal five. Yeah, um, Cameron, if he kicks a couple straight in the first quarter, this game could have been a route. It was 14 to two after one, and it should have been a lot more. There was 10 points missed out over the course of the game on shots where he hit posts. You had other stuff like Brian Myers, who's been back to earth in recent weeks still fine but not not on not, you know yeah there was where he played on and tried to hit tom hawkins instead of taking a set shot um what else let's see this this really was eerily similar to the gws loss and had some shared characteristics with the gold coast loss as well it's so frustrating because a lot of these team's losses have been not so much games where they just got outplayed like you know the trip to port or trip to frio earlier or the year. or the first two rounds yeah, it's like, this is there for you. And basically, the anatomy of a Geelong loss in 2023 is there's a big goalless route. There's a stretch where you give up two or three goals in rapid succession, which this time was Michael Walters, Sam Switkowski, and Michael Frederick combining for three goals in 36 seconds to open the second quarter, which involved a Mitch Duncan blown assignment. Duncan got the ball a bunch, but he's making some mental mistakes that just shouldn't be happening for a player of his age. Lead ended up going back and forth. Cats trailed at halftime because they left Josh Corbett open. Uh, Josh Corbett had a huge second quarter, and that's one I didn't see coming. That's another thing. You have to give up, like in these losses, you, know, you give up a bunch of goals to somebody who shouldn't be getting that, whether that was like Jack Lacocious coming off the worst game of his life, Jake Riccardi, or in this case, Josh Corbett. Yeah, Corbett, I'd, I've been calling for Corbett's omission in favor of Liam Reedy, who's yet to debut for them, one of the, their, uh, Ruckman was still down in the waffle. Corbett's, but Corbett has played his way in for the next couple weeks. And and yeah, that Riccardi one, obviously, you know, before he 
had that great stretch after he yes. dropped. But it's a game where, I mean, there weren't that many real surprises here. You saw the template for how Frio could win and how Geelong could not play up to their potential. And both of those things happened. And when Michael Frederick kicked that insane goal, kind of reminded me of uh, what Bo McCreary did last year in the uh, round 23 game against Carlton. I realized, oh, wow, the Cats are going to blow this. Yeah, that was that was the moment to me that it was really obvious. Jordan been up by seven. Jordan Clark, who had an all right game, didn't do anything that special, uh, kicked ahead, and then Michael Frederick ran a race to a ball and then kicked on the run from a really tough angle. Probably goal of the week. There were a couple other really nice ones, but I like that one. That cut into one, and then Jai Amis handballed to Lockie Schultz two and a half minutes later to give him the lead, and the Cats didn't score again. Uh, they did not score in the final 11 and a half minutes. They've scored 117 points total in the last two weeks, which with this much talent, that can't happen. This is a team that scored more points against Essendon than they did against Brisbane and Frio combined. And yes, it part that's an indictment on Essendon's defense, but this is not a Frio team that's played good defense this year. They've now lost twice at home to the Dockers in the last 15 months, and Sean Darcy didn't play in either of those games. Yes, the Cats are in ninth. Yes, with uh, their next opponent slip in form and a game against the Saints of round 23, they have an opportunity to play themselves back into things. But you're telling me they're not going to drop round 24 to the Dogs? It blows my mind that they have such a good track record against the Dogs when this team sucks on ground balls and contested possessions. Like, I see that game. Kyle Libertori should be tapped into like every fantasy team he's on. Assuming the dogs have something to play for, that's like 35 disposals guaranteed. This midfield has been so weak. Like, Cam Guthrie did not have a good start to the year, but they definitely miss him. I mean, really, it was what? Rune and Atkins, and that was it in terms of the guys who really got after it physically. I don't know what you do. Do you drop Jack Bowes? I just, you got to find a way to get Mitch Nevin in there. That's, that's sir. And you're going to, you know what you're going to have to add in the offseason. Big picture, um, I still feel very optimistic about the future of this club overall, 2024 and beyond. Like, you're seeing young guys start to come into their own. More games into Nevin and Jai Clark will do a whole lot for the midfield. That has been just subpar for them. And looking more forward, looking at some of the succession in the ruck as well in those key positions, you've got Shannon Neal working his way through things in the VFL. And hopefully when Toby Conway gets back to health, he'll made his case for a spot in the 22 very quickly. So yeah, there there's some good things there in the pipeline, but as for this year, it's a tall task for them to get to September at this point. I think the lineup decisions next week will be telling. Ollie Dempsey has not been great at the AFL level, but has been tearing up the VFL, whereas Mitch Nevitt has been more established at the AFL level so far. If you play Dempsey, that's a good sign of our sights are on 2024 and beyond. If you play Nevitt, that's a sign of we're still trying to salvage this season even though the best case scenario if everything goes right this season is like make a prelim. Everyone knows that this team at their best form can beat literally anybody anywhere, but we're not seeing that best form frequently enough. A long off season and missing finals probably helps you more big picture. Giving guys time to get fully healthy, start the year better than you did this year, probably a more favorable schedule. Like you can tell the effects on Jeremy Cameron. I mean, he's been banged up a bunch this year, and he, between 
getting beaten by Alex Pierce a few times and hitting the post twice and missing a couple set shots he usually takes, getting him fully healed up would be awesome. Some of it, like, he's going to get banged up because he just plays so hard. But I really see there would be a benefit of giving these guys, you know, those extra few weeks heading into next year and then adding some sort of big midfield. Along with Caleb Sarong being the beast that he was and really being an unchecked beast, a much more involved game from Andrew Brayshaw, which was also necessary, 28 disposals and 11 tackles. Luke Ryan led from the back again with 28, 10 intercepts and 644 meters gained. You expect a solid defensive performance from him, not Alex Pierce with his 15 intercepts, 10 contested possessions and 8 intercept marks. Better game out of Corey Wagner as well with 23 disposals and 8 marks. Someone who's found his way back into the AFL after some time at Port Melbourne and is making his case to stay. Luke Jackson with 19 hitouts, 6 disposals and 8 clearances. Still isn't playing really that full Luke Jackson style, but I don't think that's really going to happen until Liam Reedy's in there and Josh Corbett's going to keep him out. And Lockie Schultz kicked 2-1 from 19 and scored the game winner. I'm not surprised that it's Schultz with the winner. He's done that a few times in recent memory, you know, thinking back to the uh, round one win last year. He had the winner then. Dockers were plus 10 on clearances, including plus 8 from stoppage. It felt like a greater margin, though, just with the flow of play through the middle throughout this game being so perfect. Umpiring in this game was dog shit. It was not why the Cats lost, but 20-11 to 11 free kicks. Basically, if a Geelong forward touched someone, free kick for real. It's weird seeing a purple team actually get calls, isn't it? It was it was a really poorly umpired game. It was not what decided this game. There there wasn't a like a real there wasn't, you know, a slant in it or anything. It it was poor all around. But the cats were hurt more by it. It was the sort of thing that if you played your normal game and played harder, would have been a total non factor. You could have made it so that even all the shit you couldn't control would have no factor in deciding. Instead, they played poorly enough that they needed shit to go their way, and it did. Uh, Mitch Duncan, 27 disposals, 9 intercepts, 8 marks, gained 482 meters, but some of the decision-making has not been there. As you age and you're slower, you need to be a better decision-maker. Tom Stewart, 25 disposals, 11 marks, 766 meters, but he and Sam DeConing each gave up a goal off of a bad turnover in their own 50, and when you're only scoring 64, these things get magnified. Taylor Brune, 23 disposals, 13 contested possessions. Tom Atkins, 22 disposals, 14 contested possessions. Zach Guthrie, 20 disposals, 9 intercepts, 8 marks. Sam DeConing, 17 disposals, 9 marks. Jeremy Cameron, 13 disposals and 10 marks, but that that won five. I mean, if Cameron's two kicks don't hit the post and you take away those turnovers from Stewart and DeConing, there's a decent chance you win this game. And it's like, we didn't play well. But we got the points we needed to. Instead, now you're you're going to have to beat Port or Collingwood. The only game the rest of the way that I feel pretty good about is the Saints. And even that, if you play like this, you could lose to damn near anybody. If you're this low scoring already playing against a higher octane opponent, watch out for Ross Ball. In 2022, the Greater Western Sydney Giants won six games. They are now on a seven-game win streak, the longest in club history. In the most important AFL game played at Mars Stadium to date, the Bulldogs 10-13-73 fell to the Giants 11-12-78. I had to pause this game in the middle of the third quarter to pick up my father from the airport, and when I came back, I got a spoiler of this, and I was 
ridiculously confused. Yes, the Giants fixed one of their first quarter issues right away after quarter time when they put Callan Ward onto Marcus Bonapelli. Bond had a massive first quarter with 13 disposals and being the clear leader that we expect him to be. But Ward significantly limited him the rest of the way. Bontepelli only had 14 more touches for the rest of the game, while Ward racked up 22 and really won that matchup, I'd say. I thought that the Giants were really going to feel Tom Green's absence in the midfield all the way to the final siren. They definitely did in the first half, but look, then they made an adjustment against Luke Beveridge, who doesn't make adjustments. That was like exactly what I predicted would decide this game. I said, these teams are pretty close together. The difference is one coaching staff is more willing to adjust. The other thing that really decided this game, honestly, was a Bulldogs out during the week. And that was Ed Richards getting sick and that bringing in Luke Cleary. Now, you know, Cleary didn't do anything that I thought was, you know, super red flag worthy. Like, you can't play this guy again. But not having Ed Richards in there against Toby Green was very, very telling and shocker. Toby Green led the way in the fourth quarter as the Giants completed yet another comeback. Green kicked five goals, two. He kicked four goals in the third and then was a huge factor late, kicking his fifth goal with just under six minutes left to put the Giants in front for good and being involved in a couple other scores the rest of the way. My one observation from this game, because I didn't really watch much of it and I'm going to over the next couple days. You do the Malama Giants comebacks, huh? I guess I've just gotten the draw. Yeah. Um, Big Big Sound is way better on the road when, like, nobody's cheering. And it's like, these guys, like, this troll team just came in and beat you. I, I thought of that a couple weeks ago, and it, it proved it again here. Like, at, at Adelaide Oval, when they when they beat the Crows, that hit. So I believe it was actually that observation that you got, like, a Twitter notification from, and that's what spoiled it. That's really all I got. Other okay, than I- that, uh, I know Sam Taylor played really well, and... I think the way things have gone with him healthy, you could make an argument, you know, him and Tom Stewart, who's the who's the better of the two? You know, it's like a 1A and 1B. A 1 is Sam Taylor, I'm sorry. I don't know. that. I mean, Stewart, that, that turnover he had doesn't usually happen. Aaron Naughton got, I think, five marks for the game, kicked a single goal. Luke Beveridge was trying to put a positive spin on it. No. Sam Taylor beat Aaron Naughton. Plain and simple. That's not surprising. That's not something you have to be like, you try to spin positively, it's like, yeah, sometimes uh, the best defender is going to beat you. That that happens. That's pretty normal. And all the while, the Bulldogs broke down behind the ball in the second half. Richards' absence really showed there, as did Alex Keith's absence. Keith had had a couple good games in a row and then was concussed off a contest in the second quarter. So Riley West came in for him. Honestly, West had a good impact as a sub, as a smaller player, a good nose for the ball. But the defensive absence was too much for them to overcome. And even with Tim English being able to run all around Kieran Brace for most of the game, Brakes was able to lift to the fourth quarter, keep that surprisingly even, while it was some of the Giants youngsters that were crucial in bringing things back. Finn Callahan was credited with a really big fourth quarter. Pretty much all of his 22 disposals for the game were effective, if not impactful. He had three handballs in the passage for their final goal, which was uh, for Brent Daniels, who had surprised another big impact with his speed. 
Daniels and Toby Bedford in there has been such a good thing for the Giants. And the commentators were really praiseworthy of what Bedford brought to the game as well with his speed and decision making. You know, you're not expecting to win a rock battle against Tim English unless you're going at it with, like, Max Dawn. So if you just hold your own there, that's a win. It's a matter of really being able to run with them on the rest of the field. That that had been the issue for a lot of the game. But Kieran Briggs got 27 hitouts against Tim English and Rory Lobb, I guess, because Lobb took about a quarter of them. But Briggs did his job. The Greater Western Sydney Giants are in sixth. Adam Kingsley is coach of the year. I think he locked it up here. Or at least should have. He's definitely locked it up now. Unless Portman a flag. Well, is the award voted on? I forget if those are voted on before the grand final or not. I'm not sure. But in terms of home and away, it's far and away Kingsley. Oh, yeah. Couple of interesting stats. This is the longest ever win streak for the Giants. 35 points is their biggest ever comeback at the 29 point halftime deficit is one point bigger than that round one comeback, so that's also their biggest ever. My favorite stat is that they have tied an AFL record with a win at a ninth venue in the season. They did this in 2020, so did the Bulldogs. Those nine venues, the two in Sydney, Canberra, Geelong, Valorant, Marvel, Adelaide Oval, Norwood Oval, Alice Springs. You know what's not on that list? Perth. Couldn't defeat the mighty Eagles at Optus Stadium. The fortress. The hostile environment. And they will not be able to add any more vet because their remaining games are at places they've already won. So they have to do it in five. Sydney Derby 26 is even more massive than we already thought it would be. It better fucking sell out. But of course it won't because it's the showground. I don't know. I like the odds, although Buddy's injury makes definitely does help. I don't think that should be a factor. Lockheed Winfield has been a positive influence from halfback through the middle throughout this season. I feel like he'd been maligned at times with some down performances last year. That may have tainted his reputation going into the season, but there's a reason he's such a stalwart of this club. 36 disposals and nine marks says a lot to the impact that he had. Steven Canelio at 34, nine tackles and seven clearances. It's been Canelio getting a lot more of those inside possessions with Tom Green still out of the lineup. Yeah, the Giants are doing this against what we considered maybe the deepest midfield of the competition without Tom Green. I don't know about deepest, definitely the most top-heavy talent. Okay, that I think that's that might be a better way to put it. Also in that midfield, Josh Kelly had a goal from 25 at 14 tackles. Fuck yeah. And again, Callan Ward had his 22 and kept Marcus Bonapelli in check for three quarters. Looking more toward the back, Lockie Ash had 30 disposals again, 520 meters. He was probably their best player in the first quarter, if not all of the first half. I didn't realize Ash is only 22 years old. I think maybe the mustache makes him look a bit older. Finn Callahan with 22 disposals, including seven in the fourth quarter. Love the game he plays. He better be 22 under 22 and not left out because he doesn't play in Victoria. And Kieran breaks 27 hitouts, 24 disposals, 16 contested, eight clearances, and seven tackles. He was such a raw player just a couple years ago, even. Going into last year, clearly Shane Mumford has done some fantastic work with him. So much better below his knees and facilitating the Giants our midfield by just starting those possessions a lot more. Yes, the Bulldogs were plus 16 in clearances, plus 14 from stoppage, but it would have been a whole lot worse if you had Braden Bruce or Matt Flynn in there instead of Briggs. Sam Taylor had 18 disposals, 15 intercepts, and 8 intercept marks. Toby Bedford, 15 and 9 tackles. And supplementing Taylor back there 
Once again, it was Jack Buckley with 10 intercepts. Buckley tended to get that assignment against Jamar Hagen and kept him in check while, I mean, I called that. Buckley on Jamar and Harry Himmelberg really taking English when he ventured into the forward 50. Meanwhile, with Ed Richards out, it was Taylor DeRay that had the Toby Green matchup, and that just didn't fit him. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I don't think DeRay's had a very good season to begin with. And then you ask him to cover one of the best all-around forwards out there. Good luck. All-Australian vice captain behind Bontempelli. I would love that. Bailey Dale, almost all uncontested possessions, racked up 37 disposals, a goal, nine intercepts, eight marks, 793 meters. Tom Libertore, 35 disposals, 20 contested possessions, 10 core involvement, 10 clearances. Standard work for him. Adam Trelor, two goals, 34 disposals, seven clearances, seven tackles. Jack McRae, 32 disposals, 16 contested possessions, nine clearances. He has the record uh, all to himself now for most 20-plus disposal games in a row. Marcus Baldwin-Pelli, 27 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 10 score involvement, 7 clearances, 523-meter game. Tim English, 2 goals, 33 hitouts, 25 disposals, 8 marks. Anthony Scott, 2 behinds, 20 disposals. Scott, once again, having positive impact despite not finding the score sheet. He's been good for a goal every few games because, really, honestly, it comes in streaks for him. But he's one of the right place, right time players that we've taken a liking to over the past couple years, definitely. You clash... 25. Holy shit. I thought I was going to be able to take a nap during this game. The Mighty Sun. They did it. I thought this was not the game they were going to win. I guess Gold Coast coaches have a tendency of winning their first Q-Clash. Gold Coast, 15-696, defeated Brisbane, 7-13-55. Fuck yes, it's a rivalry again. And just a heated game all around for a number of reasons, but unfortunately, the crowd did not deliver. It was only about 14,000, but they snapped their nine-game losing streak to the Lions, and it's their first Q-Clash win on the Gold Coast since 2016, I believe. And we had a, like, rivalry moment. That's the most important thing. Dane Zorko accused to Miller of, he fucking grabbed my nuts. Seemed to happen in a tackle question over whether it was intentional, but Zorgo was not happy about it. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, I don't want to see anyone in the league have that happen. There are athletes in other sports that I think are reprehensible enough to deserve that. I don't think there's any current AFL player, at least to my knowledge, deserving. It seems like a lot of people were completely okay with Zorko being the victim, given his checkered past on like, and off the field. And look, it might be someone that's not such a bad one, but I'm still not rooting for that to happen to him. Uh, rooting is an interesting word to use there for the grievance. Also given Zorko's past. So actually, you know what? Glad you did that. Miller in a lot of weeks could have been a main character candidate because you had that incident and also Took shut down Bucky Neal en route to winning his record fourth Marcus Ashcroft medal. The Suns midfield just outclassed the Lions. And it was especially there. I mean, the, the Bridgman midfield was basically just a really good Josh Dunkley performance, decent Hugh McCluggage, and that that was it. The the one what if I have for the Lions is what if Joe Danaher is kicking better in the first half? This could have been a very different game. They could have gotten up on him early, and then I think they might have been able to run away with it. Instead, they were down three at halftime, having kicked four six, getting two more scores than the Suns, kicked two four in the third as the Suns exploded for five straight. And when the Suns got their next couple of goals, we realized, holy cow, this is happening. What was the moment for you where you really realized this is over? 
Hmm. Looking at the scoring summary, Charlie Cameron's miss late in the third was big. They would have been down 12 if he had hit that. Matt Rowell scoring a really nice goal to open the fourth stretch to lead back to 23. That was huge. I'd say that was really where I wasn't convinced, honestly, until the big clearance that led to Levi Casbolt's goal with about 12 and a half left. When Casbolt gets a goal like that, in particular, it's it's just so massive. I'm just so taken aback by this result for so many reasons, given the history of this rivalry, how well Lockheed Eels managed to work through a lot of tags this year. But he was limited to just 17 disposals and four clearances, while Miller racked up 29 and gained 527 meters. No surprise that Jared Witz was so effective in terms of hitouts, even bodying up against Oscar McInerney, but got so many of them to advantage. I think it was, I believe it was 17. Those are numbers that even Mark Pittenet sometimes has trouble touching. And I guess another really deep midfield, you gotta be the better pressure team. And when you got Matt Rowell there in the middle, you can do that. Speaking of Rowell, a goal, 19 disposals, 13 tackles, 12 contested possessions, seven clearances. We didn't even mention Ben King is back. He kicked 5-1. Seeing him get going, I think, was also a sign. Like, hmm, this might actually be different. Yeah, King had been goalless in his past four games. Got to go back to round 15 against Hawthorne for when he got his past couple goals. And I'm still, you know, considering how we saw the very start of his career in 2020 and 21, I'm still surprised that Rao has become just this uber inside player. But when you've got Noah Anderson, Chuke Miller even swallow among others to whom you could feed it, it can work. Oh, it's Sam Flanders, duh. A redemption story with him that was most definitely assisted by Stephen King taking the reins as caretaker. Yeah, two of the three games under Stephen King, he's been off. 32 disposals and seven marks. Noah Anderson, a goal of a high. 29 disposals, nine score involvements, 548 meters gain. Rory Atkins, 28 disposals, 564 meters Will Powell, 28 disposals, 9 intercepts. David Swallow, a behind, 23 disposals, 8 tackles. Brandon Ellis has been one of the better performers under King. A goal and 21 disposals. Ben Ainsworth, 2 goals, a behind, 20 disposals. Nearly had another goal, but Harris Andrews prevented him from scoring an insane soccer by barely getting his toe on it. That would have been the moment I realized they'd won had he managed to actually kick that. It, it was initially thought to have been a goal by everybody except a couple umpires who were right. And Mac Andrew, 14 disposals, seven marks. He did do something dumb late in the game, slinging Jared Barry to the ground off the ball. He's got to control the temper stuff, but still played a solid game and got the rising star now. Fuck yes. I mean, I think there's another player who may have deserved it more based on this week alone, but given his past month of play, I am wrapped for Andrew to actually get that. Wait, free kicks were plus 16 to the Lions? Is that right, Ethan? That is correct. And yet the Suns were able to work through their own clumsiness at times. Part of it was because they were 58% in disposal efficiency from inside 50, while the Lions were just at 40%. That's surprising when you consider how many good forwards breaks would have. But it was not a great game for Eric Hipwood, not a great ga- game for Charlie Cameron, who Kelly Underwood kept calling Charlie Kernow. Can we talk about Kelly Underwood for a second? I know, I feel like everybody does. I'm so fucking over it. See, that's I. That's why I didn't want to, but between getting his name wrong multiple times, at one point with a few minutes left, talking about, uh, she said, the Gold Coast Lions. I thought that was more, more about like 
that's what I was trying to say, like this Gold Coast Lions rivalry that she just cut off. I don't know. But look, we have a lot of gripes with the commentary. I feel sad for Queenslanders that this was the team assigned to this game because this rivalry deserves better. And hopefully it'll get better press if it does stay more even from here. The disposal efficiency inside 50 also a testament to, you know, the Suns having numbers back and putting on pressure all throughout the ground. It was what they needed to do. I'm so thrilled that it actually all came together for them because, look, the signs have been there for the Suns these past couple years that they can take this step. Maybe Stewart too was the problem. It's still just the, the timing of that all is still weird, and I think it was poorly timed, but if the 2024 Suns qualify for finals, it obviously works. Of course, who knows if Stephen King will be the one to lead them. I'd still put money on Dima over him. I don't know, I think Dima just wants some time off. This just feels like the Suns that were going to go after a big name. Go after, yes. Get? Uncertain. Hit outs were plus 15 to the Suns. McInerney did exit this game late. He had some ice on his right ankle, but that margin was worked out well before that. As he mentioned, Ethan, Josh Dunkley led the way for the Lions, scoring a point from 30 disposals, 10 score involvements, and octopus and nine clearances. His role was obviously magnified with Lockheed Neal being so limited. Cuba Cluggage kicked 1-1 from 28, so I guess you can throw out that whole 20 disposal thing from him even more. Kadeem Coleman, 21 disposals at 8 marks, but was out of the game late after getting a share into the face, so watch for news on him. Ryan Lester, 20 disposals at 15 marks, much more active aerial game for him. Joe Danaher kicking three behinds from 16 disposals at 7 marks is maybe not as much of a surprise as I would think. And it's something that's going to stick with you. Again, he ticks accurately early. The Lions are out to a nice lead. And you wonder if the Suns hang around mentally after that. Okay. A lot of times we see with upsets, you know, it's like you let a team hang around and they start to believe. And that's that's where these things are built. Essendon 15-9-99 defeated by Sydney 15-11-101 in not quite an elimination game. But I think the Bombers are in pretty deep shit now. And I think. The Swans have a very real shot of cracking the eight again. They're right back there in 10th now at 9-1, and, and, you know, not a horrendous percentage at all. While Essendon in 13th, they've got a free shot these next couple weeks, I think, against the Eagles and North, but two really tall tasks to finish the season, going to the Giants and then Collingwood round 24. They may need all four of those games. Really interesting game the way this one unfolded. Essendon... Super dominant territory-wise early, but only led by a point after the quarter. Swans handed it to them in the latter half of the second quarter to take a 19-point halftime lead. Got that lead all the way out to 37 early in the third, and it was still 26 with a little under 17 minutes left. And then Essendon came roaring back. Kyle Langford kicked five. Peter Wright ended up having a pretty solid game, but you, you're never going to believe this. Essendon's inability to stop a team attacking them ended up being the difference. And the decisive moment after the Bombers had cut it to two was Tom Papley kicking from 60 meters through an open goal square. He kicked from the center square. Fuck, I can't believe that. <laughs> Other huge play. So Sam Durham scored with 436 left. Langford could have tried to kick his six, but had Durham open the goal square, so he just handballed to him. That cut it to three. Andrew Phillips got the ensuing center clearance, but Todd McCartan was able to hold off Peter Wright to force it behind. Although great to see McCartan finish this game after getting hit in the chin early on, like a kind of a head knock almost. 
For Sydney, I think the biggest story was clearly just Errol Golden was phenomenal. He didn't have a lot of contested possessions because he kept getting to open space. A goal lock, 37 disposals, 11 score involvements, 10 marked, 725 meters. And that goal was phenomenal. Beat Zach Barrett for the ball, made him, Jaden Laverde, and Andrew McGrath look silly before snapping. Uh, for Essendon, their ruck situation is still so weird. Nick Bryan played a really good first half. Andrew Phillips looked really bad early, but then played a huge role in that fourth quarter comeback. Like, what do you do with this? Ryan is the more versatile player, and that's why I think Phillips is in trouble once Draper is able to get back, whatever that is. Yeah, we, we still really don't know about that. Thinking, though, in terms of the flow of this game and in terms of other talls, you got Sydney taking advantage with their size against the still undersized and undermanned Essendon in back unit with Joel Marty being the biggest to benefit from that, taking 4-1 from seven marks. Sam Wicks getting a couple as well. I will say this. I like Nick Cox in there. He has definitely been a much-needed presence. Still, though, the time off from the AFL level is a bit telling there, and I don't think he's the only one that has to be in there. They still need to shore up their ranks there. I think the price to pay for Ben McKay is going to be pretty big, and I don't know if that's the right move, but they need something else there. Like, at some point, you got to do something. And I think they will. I think Brad Scott and the higher-ups already know that. The biggest story for the Swans has come in the aftermath of this game. Buddy Franklin got subbed out in the second quarter with a calf injury, and it looks like this is it for him. Yeah, I would have sidelined him for six to eight weeks. He'd fear that it could have been even longer with the calf injuries that he suffered in recent years, and he announced his immediate retirement on Monday. So 19 years... 354 games, 1,066 goals, massive in growing the game in New South Wales. And my favorite stat from his career, even better than the 13 club-leading goal kicker, uh, four-time Coleman, eight-time All-Australian, two senior coaches, seven prime ministers. Thank you, Swamp. That is like one of my favorite stats I've ever seen as well. I love that. Obviously, his presence will be missed, but... I think they're just fine at forward. Remember, they're doing this all without Sam Reed, who hasn't played a game all year and won't. And yeah, it's not like the Swans are hurting for help at the tall forward positions. No, it's just like it would have been nice for him to have a proper finale at the SCG. And obviously he'll obviously he'll be honored. But he's taken some time for himself at this point. We know that he's a very private person and it almost feels fitting that this is the way that he goes out just kind of quickly on his own terms, no huge fuss in the stadium or anything about it. That's what really stands out to me. And he's he's one of the first players that I really got to know about when we came to the game in 2020, even though he didn't play that. No, he did not play in 2020. At the same time, he's one of the players that you would end up learning about quickly just because of the ridiculous goal scoring ability that he had and his impact in great periods at Hawthorne and Sydney, and it'll resonate for a while, his departure, more off the field than on it, probably. It's just, the way it ending is disappointing because it was it's so abrupt. Again, it's it's funny because he's, you know, been such a dramatic player that he's such, like, a quiet guy, from all we can tell, and that he doesn't really want, like, you know, to be the center of attention. 
But it would be cool to do like a send off, like an exhibition game or something where it's like, you know, he plays a half with Hawthorne Legends and a half with Sydney Legends. That totally does love like his thing. I would love to see a Buddy Franklin testimonial. I feel like that would be something that they'd put in Marvel. And I think it would draw a lot of people. It's it's not his type, though. Yeah, it, it's amazing. You know, we we talk, we think about these these great goal kickers and, you know, he's extremely private. Tony Lockett's extremely private as well. I'm glad Jason Dunstall's not because he's funny as shit. And actually, there's a way in which Buddy has surpassed both of them, even though he finishes fourth on the all-time goals list behind Chief, Gordon Coventry, and Plugger. But there's a stat in which he's surpassed them all. And there's this has been a metric that's been getting more attention in these past few days. And it's about, you know, era-adjusted goals in an era where it's been much harder to score than when any of those prior players had been on the oval but he had still been so prolific to the tune of kicking over a thousand goals. And that oval invasion is the last that we're going to see for a while. And it's going to be a memory that will stick with people for a lifetime. As I mentioned, Errol Golden, best on ground in this game. Pretty obviously the best. Jake Lloyd, 31 disposals, 8 marks, 588 meters. Braden Campbell, a behind 26 disposals, 8 marks and 535 meters. Chad Warner, a really nice game. McGull, 26 disposals, 11 score involvements, and 584 meters. Harry Cunningham, pretty good defensively. Uh, I don't know if Harry trusts like that. I don't trust like that. But he had 21 disposals and 10 intercepts. Tom Papley, two goals of behind, 19 disposals. Here's my favorite stat for him, 16 contested possession. Imagine if he celebrated every contested possession like he did every goal. I would love to see him doing that while still like pursuing the ball. Like, as play continues, that would be really funny. Isaac Heaney, two goals, 17 disposals, eight marks. And Amarty, who hit that 4-1, had seven marks. Bombers plus 22 on inside 50s, but Sydney nearly 20% more efficient. Yes, Essendon were a bit subpar with inside 50 efficiency, but what stood out more was just how easy it was for Sydney to get going inside 50. Uh, once again, the Swans have basically foregone hitouts. Essendon won that 52-18. to 18. Bobbers took clearances 42 to 29. Zach Merritt led the game for possession totals with 39 disposals and nine clearances, eight marks, and 486 meters gained. Would have been talking a lot more about his performance had Essendon been able to get over the line in the end that they had a chance to with a miracle at the very end. We didn't discuss this actually, but because Hayden McLean was called for, I believe it was taking the ball out on the fold because it went off his lower leg near the very end of the game. Giant Menzi snapped it to put it back within two points. That was a very difficult kick. Yeah, so but it was still, there were six seconds left and the game felt over. The Swans had done a good job leading out clock leading up to that. As I said, it, it would have taken a miracle. Not even Melbourne could do that so quickly, I think. I did love the like design play that Essendon had in the ensuing center bounce. They had, yeah, had, had Merritt soccering off of it. It was like clearly by design, and they ran it perfectly. Bryant tap, merit clearance, but the kick bounced on his way to Nick Cox, and even if he had marked it, he would have been close to 60 meters out. But it was, it was a well-designed play. This is the best year of Jai Caldwell's career. He's kicked 1-1 from 27 disposals, 17 contested possessions. Take that, Papley. 11 clearances and 9 score involvements. Darcy Parrish with 27, 11 intercepts at 511 meters gained. Dyson Heppel working in the back had 25 disposals. Nick Hyde went between 50s, had a goal from 23. And 
Just want to touch a little bit on Kyle Langford still. Five goals straight. We've been questioning his spot in the 450, whether it's better for him to go back into the defense. Wherever he plays, he, to me, is Essendon. And they are a much better team when he is in there. Here's my thing with Langford. If you were to put him at defender, which I have for a lot, it would be a brief thing, like just for this season. And then you try to stock up the defense moving forward so you can put him back at forward because he's a very good forward. It's a decision that is made even more difficult when he puts on performances like that. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me at Castle Media. You can find Brian Harambe on Instagram at Catnick Brian. You can find him right now sleeping on my bed, I believe. Yep, he's, he's still right there. He was being a little chaotic early on, but has settled in quite nicely. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Mostly these days, I'm just posting my best Immaculate Grid scores. Start to play a bit of Gridley as well, but obviously don't have as deep of a knowledge of footy players past as we do baseball players. Showdown 54. Uh, Crom. Yeah, this, uh, did not see this one, Gobbin. Neither did I. The Crows led the whole way. Worked things out in the second quarter to lead at the half by 29, just doubling up Port. Never felt like it was really over until Taylor Walker had another goal or two in the fourth quarter. Yeah, Tex is the big story out of this game. Seven goals to tie a showdown record. His first showdown medal, actually, as Adelaide won it 16-16-112 to Port 9-11-65. It's their first showdown sweep since 2017. It came in front of over 50,000 people, the highest attendance at the Adelaide Oval this season. And the showdown ledger is now even at 27. Knowing how much these teams hate each other and how much these fan bases hate each other, I would also feel this is the best rivalry in the AFL, if not on it at times. I mean, there, we've seen so many lopsided games as of late. I hope that it can stay, you know, as hotly contested. We've seen a couple of these games these past couple years. Like, as good as this season has been for Port, getting swept by the Crows... I think there are a lot of Port fans, or at least a significant subsection, that would now call this season a failure if they don't win a flag. It's like, you know, it's like either kick their ass or win a flag. It's like a lot of times, like how I'll measure the Ravens season is like, how do you do against Pittsburgh? If you're not going to win the Super Bowl, beat the shit out of your rights. And I think this also shows just how good Adelaide can be and the fact that you know, just a couple of, you know, a couple of close games go the other way. This is a team that's pushing for a home final. And they're doing that despite being undermanned in defense. Nick Morial with his ACL injury, joining Tom Duday there. Enter County Cork's Mark Keane wearing number 48. I cared about this because now we've had a player wearing all numbers 1 through 50, which will make for a nice graphic. Yeah, we're going to have some fun with that after the season's over. Look for some off-season content relating to that. But Keane held his ground against Charlie Dixon, was beaten a couple times early but stood up and even watched a couple scores as well to really keep himself in this team for probably through the end of the season. And he was also rewarded after the game with a two-year contracts extension. So, fuck yeah. What a great story. First AFL game in over two years, had played five games for Collingwood between 2020 and 21, went back to County Corp to play Gaelic football for a year. I think he's found his home again in Australia. Interesting list stuff from Port for this game as well. I thought it was almost a disrespect to the Crows that they decided to manage Trav Boak and Scott Lysette. Boak came on as the sub, 
This game had the third most prior games combined for the sub tandem under any format, by the way, because Rory Sloan was the Crows sub. But from the beginning, it just felt like, man, they're doing the Crows really dirty there. They better come out and win this game, if not thrash them. And the reverse happened. I, I feel like if Hort had known that Collingwood was going to lose, maybe that would have changed their decision-making a bit with this. They okay. still have a game over both Brisbane and Melbourne, but no sure thing the rest of the way. I mean, we're looking at that Geelong contest as a legitimate chance for the top two to finally start changing. Really what I'm left with for this game is the success of Mark Keane on return and another sort of return as well that's been going on for a couple weeks now is Matt Crouch regaining his place in the lineup and being their best midfielder was second in the showdown medal voting after getting 32 disposals, 12 clearances, and 10 score involvements. This is someone who has hardly been able to get a game the past couple of years, even though he's been working it down in a sandful throughout that time. He's been a great servant of the Adelaide Football Club, and I love seeing him get rewarded like this. He's out of contract after this year, but it makes it very difficult for him to be let go if he's still putting up games like this. It prompts some weird questions. Yeah. Like I remember at times in the past couple of years, it was he was like a very obvious drop candidate. And now it's like maybe should have kept faith in him. The big question is what faith do they have in him beyond August? By the way, he's 28. He is from Ballarat. So it could be opportunities for him elsewhere. You know, maybe he's got a brother at the Saints. Brad left after the 2021 season to go closer to home. I'm not sure what the move is for Matt. I would assume that the Saints would be the biggest suitor for him if he opts to go elsewhere, but Cats should make a move if he does go. I'm certainly interested. Looking back toward defense, in addition to Mark Keane, we knew that Mitch Hinge and Wade Miller would need to have much more important games, both in terms of disposing of the ball, as has been an issue for them at times throughout the season, but also standing up and marking, and they both did that. Even against a taller forward group, they won the majority of their contests, and otherwise the rest of the team, with their high pressure through the middle, made it difficult for the power to get proper entries. Marks inside 50 in the first half were 10-0 to zero in the Crows' favor. One of the most surprising half stats that I've seen this entire season. If you had told me the Crows were going to win this game, I mean, like, all right, home team does do really well in showdown, even though they're both at the same ground. But to do it in such convincing fashion is very surprising. The most surprising part about this whole ordeal. Also, I must give credit to Josh Worrell as well, playing taller in defense. In addition to Wayne Miller and Mitch Hinge, glad he's getting more consistent time at the AFL level. The biggest story for Port from this game comes from something that is, I, I guess, yeah, it is still majority on field. I'm going to touch on that in a second. Firstly, though, even though Francis Evans has lost his past couple games, Holy fuck, four goals? He kicked three all season. Should have kept Cats. Him and Cooper Stevens would look mighty nice right here. Stevens was an emergency for the Hawks this weekend, a late addition to the emergencies, actually. But the uh, the issue for Port, which has stuck around as a talking point in the aftermath of this game, uh, most teams have been responsible about head injury stuff with their players. Port, not so much in this game. It's not just this game, Ethan, actually. I referenced this multiple times on Twitter, and I think a lot of fans are realizing it as well, and not just Richmond fans, because this was in their game. 
back last year in round 13, the Thursday nighter against the Tigers. Big head clash between Zach Butters and Tom Jonas. No big assessment there. Able to see the game out. This time, the AFL has come down on this much harder. So still in the earlier part of the second quarter, by which point the Crows were leading by 20, 34 to 14. Huge head clash between Alir Alir and Lockie Jones. Both of them looked to be out before hitting the ground. Six minutes and 40 seconds later, Alir's back on the field. As for Jones, he was subbed down at halftime. Nope, no, not concussed. Officially, he had, it's tactical and he had a migraine. Man, I wonder what kind of in-game could give you a fucking migraine. This is just so irresponsible from Port Adelaide in an era where we know what we do about head injuries. In an era where the league is facing a fucking lawsuit about it. I really like some of the Twitter conversation. Um, Wendell 2.0, a Port Adelaide fan we know. From the D.C. area, I believe. Yeah, so we said nothing stopping the NFL for requiring independent doctors, which is something that the NFL has been doing and still hasn't entirely gotten right, but has been better about. Tiger fan responds, accept the budget. And then Wendell says, doctors are cheaper than lawsuits. He's right. And the fact that this isn't the first incident regarding port as well makes it even more irritating and should be even more of a stain on the reputation and the career of their chief medical officer, their chief doc, Mark Fisher. The club needs to come down hard on him for this. Alir and Jones have now been placed in concussion protocol and will not be playing in Geelong this week. This is the sort of thing that, you know, it's unacceptable if it's even happened once, but for this to happen multiple times, like, I'm sorry, that should probably cost you your job. Either that or, you know, someone told him, hey, don't text test these guys. We need them out there. And whoever did that needs to needs to be punished. Either way, something's not right. There needs to be a continued investigation into this. I mean, the AFL probably has access to all the communication from coaches during these games, audio from headsets and in the rooms, if there's anything there, they will, I believe, get to the bottom of this out of necessity for themselves, for the game, for player safety, for the club. Considering all of the match review stuff that's employed, I think there just needs to be someone in real time that gets out there and is just monitoring for possible head injury signs. Well, Port Adelaide have been issued a please explain by the league. I love that term, by the way. This is like very to the point. Yeah, just like fucking explain what happened. And I want to like Port. I like so many of their players. I had recognized very early on in our time watching that Connor Rosie is going to be a star. And I've been talking up his case. Every the day. atmosphere at their games is great. This crowd was amazing. Their fans are great. We've got a couple of them here in the States that we've gotten to know a bit. Shout out to uh, Regina Ham, Philadelphia sports reporter who jumped on the port train within these past couple years. Shout out to all the pair. But this makes me want bad things to come down upon this club. You've got to take care of your players. For one reason or another, Mark Fisher and the medical staff did not do that. That reason must be found out. And those responsible must be sacked. I don't think those responsible for the sacking will need to be sacked, though, unless they ended up covering even more up. Eventually, all the doctors get replaced with llamas. That's 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 how this happens. Jordan Dawson, three behind, 34 disposals, 10 score involved with 627 meters. Wade Miller, 32 disposals, nine intercepts, 672 meters. Rory Laird with a very Rory Laird game, 26 disposals and 13 tackles. Brody Smith, 20 disposals, gained 503 meters. 
Taylor Walker's 7-4 from 20 disposals. Josh Worrell, 20 disposals, 559 meters. Darcy Fogarty, two goals to behinds, 18 disposals, 10 score involvements, nine marks. You can pretty much count on one of him or Luke Pedler to be heavily involved every week with facilitating the offense, and this time Fogarty did a lot of that. Harry Schoenberg, two behinds, 15 disposals, seven tackles. If he could be a better kick for goal, he could be a really good player. And Mitch Hinge, 10 intercepts. He's been such an entertaining player because he's like, he's clearly a flawed player, but he's a fun player. It amazes me, even as the Crows' all-time leading goal kicker, this will be his seventh year leading the club in that regard, that Taylor Walker, at age 33, this will now be his 15th season, has never made the All-Australian team. That's changing this year, right? It has to. If not now, when? And, I'm not, and I wasn't even trying to make any sort of reference there, but seriously, it has to happen. Inside 50s, this game actually went against the Crows. It was plus nine to Port, but the Crows were over 23% more efficient in terms of disposals inside 50. That speaks to some of the connections that they made and also the pressure that they were able to put on Port throughout this game. It was full round pressure. And when you don't have the size to compete as much in the air, you've got to do it on the ground. And the Crows did. It's also a reason they were plus eight clearances and plus 11 from stoppages, plus 13 in tackles. They had to win on the ground. They did. Well done, Matthew Nix. Well done, Crows. I just want to know if it was Nix or list management or what that kept Crouch from being involved more earlier in the season. That's really the only potentially negative question that we have from this game. Zach Butters led Port with 32 disposals, had 10 score involvements and 518 meters gained. His partner in crime, Connor Rosie, kicked two behinds for 26 and seven tackles. Ollie Wines had a goal from his 20 disposals. Charlie Dixon, a goal from 18, and Dan Houston doing normal Dan Houston things with 26 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 622 meters gained. I'm glad the rest of Australia and the AFL fan base has come to appreciate Houston as much as, in particular, I have in the past few years. I think this season has really been his finest of all. And that's even before, even if you remove the After the Siren winner. Oh, yeah, that's like just a small aspect of his overall body. All right, Sunday funny. Three interesting games. We don't usually go three for three with fun Sunday. But this was more tippable than Saturday. It, it, in a way, I mean, I got two out of three. If you told me, if you had me guess which team would kick a 50-point first quarter this week, I don't know if the Saints would have been the last one I guessed or if it would have been one of the Eagles or North. But, you know, since they were playing each other, just like, or if you had told me, asked me which team kicks 50 points in the first quarter, you don't have to, you don't give me who they're playing against. The Saints would probably be the number 16 guess on that list ahead of only West Coast and North. Who would your top pick have been this week going into the round? The Brisbane Lions? Uh, I don't know. Shit. Maybe? I would have said the Brisbane Lions. I would have said the Lions who scored 55 for the game. The Saints scored 56 in the first fucking quarter. They had to score 56 in a first half all year. Credit to Hawthorne for not rolling over and just letting the Saints take it to him after that, though they made this a game. They did, but it was too much to overcome in the end. Hawthorne, 14-9-93, defeated by St. Kilda, 19-8-122, a rare Marble Stadium home game for the Hawks. So really, it was more of a Saints home game. I think that was necessitated by, obviously, Collingwood and Richmond having their home games this round, and also the Bledisloe Cup being at the G on Saturday, which also drew very well. I know the, the All Blacks handled the Wallabies pretty easily in bat. 
But yeah, after that nine goals to three first quarter, the Hawks won each of the next two quarters, worked it back to an 11-point game at three-quarter time. And their best part of the ground, in my opinion, obviously they had some good connections going into the forward half. Chad Wingard keeping up well, Luke Bruce doing Luke Bruce things, and Brandon Ryan scoring on his debut. Cousin of Luke Ryan, by the way, dramatic rise for him from local footy to the big time in well under a year. But I thought that the best part of the ground for Hawthorne as they were making their way back was moving on the wing opposite the one where Jackson Clair plays, staying away from the opposition's best area, staying away from their best player. Sinclair still wound up with 26 disposals, eight intercepts, seven marks in 508 meters gained. And yeah, he was also tagged by Finn McGinnis in the first quarter before that went off as the Hawks needed to find something offensively. But I like the play that they took on from their end. They made it a surprisingly close game at times. But if you look at why the Saints got out to that big margin in the first quarter, they directly addressed their biggest issues from the round 11 loss in which Hawthorne kicked the last five goals to shock them. Slow, Ross Ball type stuff had played into the Hawks' hands, and the Saints, for the first time since that opening stretch of the season, kind of the opening third of the season, picked up the pace. They overlapped everywhere. They had huge pressure around every stoppage, pretty much. They had fast counterattacks. This list is able to play this way. It's great that you have a coach in Ross Lyon who is defensively minded, knows how to coach them to a slower style, but that's not the best way for this list to play. And I think he may have finally realized that in this game. Coaches are usually so set in their ways if they have that one style that's like their trademark. So that's that's really cool that Lyon actually took the initiative there and did that. Oh, it's super encouraging. I was scared after we saw the Saints slow things down and their form had dipped that he would be too stubborn. But I think it was this natural that really woke him up to it. The question now is, of course, how much is it going to stick next week? And through the end of the campaign, they're at fifth all of a sudden. It's obviously, you know, a very tight 10 teams right there. You just have eight points separating fifth and fifth last. The closest the finals race has been at this point in 16 years. But the Saints need to keep taking on the game like this and taking on matchups like this. They also solved the issue of James Sicily having a career game against him last time. They put as many players around him in their forward 50 as they could, cut him off from marking so much. He had players bodying up to him. I fucking loved Mitch Owens being able to do that a couple times in this game, even when there weren't a whole lot of other players in the mess around Sicily. See, it's interesting. I would have thought it just would have been like, just don't go near Sicily. Instead, they took him on and sent everyone at him. The point is, I think Sicily is going to be able to get to the ball if you don't put extra people on him. He's so adept at moving throughout the ground that really, that's the way you have to do that. It was called on the broadcast, I believe, really a kind of defensive tag. And it worked. It's the first time that I've seen anything like that, but I loved it. I like when coaches and teams are willing to admit they did something wrong and fix it. We saw that a lot this round. We saw it a lot on Sunday in particular. And again, I want to give Hawthorne a lot of credit because they've had a couple games, like the one against Port, where they just got rolled, just like, all right, on to next week. And that they finished this game out with a sense of pride and made it competitive. I'm left with a very positive impression. The Saints did go back into their defensive shell too early. You saw it a bit going into halftime. You really saw it in the third when the Hawks managed to work it back, scoring six goals, two. And that was a wake-up call that took the game on again in the fourth as they had to. The prevent defense was 
far too early there was if you know ice hockey like we do, it was San Jose Sharks like really over the past decade plus work. You get a multi-goal lead early or you have a one-goal lead even any time past the halfway point of the game. And they would retreat defensively, not really chase forward of the center line. I'm honestly glad that that wasn't the Saints' downfall and that they readjusted. I want this team to break out of the St. Kilda reputation. Yes, I know, Ethan, that we've talked about how they may not be one of the best eight teams out there this year. I think their record's better than they are. They've benefited some from scheduling and the new coach boost, obviously. But I want this club to do good things. Oh, I do too. There's no club that I can think of that thinks, oh, one of our biggest goals is stop the Saints. Like, who's their rival? Maybe the Gold Coast Suns, if we if we try to make it into that. Remember we talked about that last time? Yes, we need, like, you know, the civil conflict type thing. For those of you that don't know the civil conflict, Connecticut, who is not a college football school, tried to manufacture a rivalry with Central Florida, which was a college football school that was dramatically on the rise at that time, really in the early to mid 2010s. And and yeah, UConn has had some better football teams in somewhat recent times and proved this past year, but they're a basketball school. They just won the championship. But yeah, it was a team in Connecticut trying to create a rivalry with a team in Florida. And Connecticut and Florida are not close to each other, if you didn't know. Connecticut's like sandwiched between New England and New York. Yeah, technically it's a part of New England, if we're going to go by the, you know, typical definition. But but Florida is... Florida is not. Florida is Florida. Florida's in another fucking country compared to Connecticut and really compared to most of America. And they tried to play it up just because like they had like you had the Florida and Connecticut state abbreviations in in the word conflict. It was a mess. I, I think like they made a trophy out of it and UCF never claimed it. But we need we need some sort of manufactured rivalry for the Saints is the point. So many good performers for the Saints. Let's start with the winner of the Silk Miller Memorial Medal as best on ground. That being Brad Crouch, what a weekend for the Crouch brothers. Crouch kicking three goals straight from 32 disposals, 12 score involvements, eight clearances at 514 meters gained. We'd aligned him for some overuse of the ball and what appeared to be almost some sad accumulation at times. Much more efficient this game and a better kick for goal as well. I'm wondering, it's something that I think they needed at times, especially with Seb Ross out. And I'm surprised I'm thinking of Seb Ross like this, but he's good for that one or two goals a game and some crazy plays every now and then. And that's something that I think they miss, that that good sort of chaos he could provide. Brad Crouch is much more composed, but he could provide that forward presence at times. Naziah Wanganin Milro led the game with 33 disposals. He had 10 marks at a goal as well. One of Mason Woods' more active games in a while since his massive start to the year. 25 disposals, 14 contested, 9 intercepts, 9 marks, and 493 meters gained. Captain Jack Steele, one of the more underrated captains, I think, these days. 23 disposals, 13 contested possessions, 12 tackles, and 7 clearances. Also one of the more underrated Billy Joel saw. He'll get you high tonight. Like, Billy Joel's entire library is really good, but I think that's one of the most slapped off. St. Kilda were minus 20 in hitouts this game, with Lloyd Meek doing the work there as Ned Reeves was suspended. I think Hawthorne's best 22 has to have Meek and Reeves in there. I, I think so. I think, yeah, have Reeves as that high center half forward. And then have him kind of jump in occasionally on rough stuff. Kind of Luke Jackson-y. Yeah, I, I, that's what I mentioned last time. Though. He does not as bulky as Jackson, but is tall enough to still have an impact there as a ruck. But a full game ruck really, I don't think, is where he belongs. But the point is, Rowan Marshall still managed to get 24 hitouts, got 22 disposal and scored a goal. A full field effort from him again. The Saints just 
don't have somebody right now who's able to support him there. And I guess if Jack Hayes comes back soon, that could help. If Max King comes back next round, like we think, he could take some of that maybe in the 450. It's it's a tough spot for the Saints, and really it's one of the things that they still need to solve. Jake Gresham was the sub for this game. First time he'd been dropped was a surprising one there, considering the talk shot. Him potentially leaving, but he came on when Zach Jones inevitably got hurt again. Has some of the most rotten luck in the league, Zach Jones, when it comes to injuries along with him. And we never mentioned Josh Bruce earlier, rupturing his ACL, his the other ACL I in feel, that Dogs-Giants game. I feel so bad for Josh Bruce. I mean, that, that's 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 a lot like the career ender at this point. Like, here's the thing. We've said he does not belong as a defender. And I think the team has done him a disservice by putting him there. But with this the, is a guy who just a couple years ago was, he had a 10-goal game. It's like, I think, unfortunately, he's going to go down as one of those what-if-he-had-better-health guys. But I would love to see him work his way back and get another game somehow. I'd love to see the same for, say, Matt Taberner. And I'd love for Zach Jones to have a more consistent run as well, which is why I brought him up in the first place. But Gresham took advantage of the time that he had on ground, kicking a goal from 19 disposals and eight marks. Cal Wilkie had 19 disposals and 15 marks, their defensive leader. We talked about some players that maybe weren't respected enough before this year. Cal Wilkie was one of those. He's been really good. He had Liam Stalker to help him in the back after Stalker was omitted for the first time last week. Stalker with 17 disposals and 10 marks. Marcus Windhager, 18 and eight marks in. The midfield, not the tagger that we've seen him be in the past. And not that isn't really to Ross Lyons' style, but glad he's gotten AFL game time and has gotten on the ball more. And Dan Butler kicked four straight from 17. Butler is not on that list of guys you would expect to give you four. You know, maybe two or three on the good day, but four is not a typical MO. Good for him. No, no, it's just the fourth time that he's had four goals in his career is Career high was five, and I remember when that was without needing to look it up. It was uh, round 19 last year against the Eagles in Perth. Saints were 36 to 29 on clearances, plus 38 on marks. Not surprising with how much Hawthorne likes to handball, and then the Saints slowing the game down at stretches. Saints laid 12 more tackles, 63 to 51. Not a ton of tackles either way, but it was, you know, a largely faster, free flowing game with a lot of uncontested possessions. So that kind of goes in line with that. On the Hawthorne side, Jarman Impey's been a godsend in fantasy. 31 disposals, 501 meters. James Warple, 30 disposals, 19 contested possessions, 7 clearances. James Sicily, 26 disposals, 8 intercepts, 7 marks. Chad Wingard, 2 goals, 26 disposals, 10 score involvement, 7 marks. In terms of pressuring this game in the in the forward part of the ground for Hawthorne, Wingard really had it here and gave him more than just a half. Because last week against Richmond, he played that amazing first half and then man. And he's got a scoring touch again as well. He may still have it, actually. If he gets a good run else, which he hasn't had as of late, he could be another one of those better, older presences on a team that is obviously going in a younger direction. I know we joke a fair amount about Dwayne Russell and some of his overused lines, but if he wants to say Wingardium Leviosa like a thousand times, go right ahead. I'm not sure if he has. Will Day, two goals, 22 disposals, 11 marks, 704 meters. Connor Nash, 22 disposals. Jai Newcomb, 20 disposals, 13 contested possessions. Luke Bruce, six goals straight. That tied his career high. One of the good things to come out of this game for the Hawks. Richmond, 15-8-98, defeated by Melbourne, 20-10-130. The Tigers led this game by six with 14-21 left. 
and did not score again. Melbourne taking 6-2 the rest of the way. And you know how we mentioned very early on that Jeremy Howe was not the most surprising defender going forward and kicking goals? Introducing forward Harrison Pettin. Um, Holy shit. Six goals. That's, that's your main story from this game. Straight into the point. The Demons may have finally found their forward line. Petty won that matchup against Noah Balta throughout this game. He had six, and Jacob Van Royen and Jake Melcher each had four. That's 14 of their 20 right there. And then Kazi Pickett had a couple in the fourth as well. He didn't do a ton before that, but he was still, you know, your energizer type. And you know when he gets a goal, it, the whole team lights up. Usually, yeah. that, And it's been the case the past couple weeks. He did get on the ball early, which was good. Had an impact in one of their first goals. But it was the fourth quarter where he stood out a lot more. There were some great back-and-forth stretches in this game. Meet the fun, exciting Melbourne Demons. It's a real deviation from how boring they these last four games, ever since the ugly-ass GWS game, have been fun. Like, I know the Saints game, you know, St. Kilda kind of had to slow things down because injuries. The games since against the Lions, Crows, and now this, where the Ds are playing up-tempo and really taking advantage of having so much talent to the point where they realized we don't have to just slow you down. We can beat you just because we have better players pretty much everywhere. And it's been really fun. They're still, you know, somewhat reliant on the big names of the back and Stephen May and Jake Lieber, but they've been okay despite having some bigger totals score on them because they realized the benefits of them being able to go up tempo, push forward so much. And we saw that a whole lot this game. We've seen Agus Brayshaw being a leader in a lot of that in the middle, especially with Clayton Oliver being out. And Max Gaughan was elite again, has been, really, he's been Max Gaughan again since Brody Grundy was dropped. His second half was one of the best second halves we've seen out of any tall and really most players this entire season. Let me run you through this game. Pretty back and forth, lead fluctuating each way, two goals. Then Richmond got up 20 early in the third with... Back-to-back goals by Dustin Martin and Tim Taranto. Uh, Jacob Van Royen kicking his third goal, cut the lead down to 14 with 16-10 left as it just started dumping for like 90 seconds. It was the weirdest thing. Super intense storm for literally like 90 seconds. And amazingly throughout this, there was like no transition anywhere. Every goal had come from a stoppage either in the forward half or a center clearance. I could get that from Melbourne game. Less for Richmond, but there we are with the first 22 goals of this game all coming from stoppage or forward half territory. This game was just so much fun to watch. Five goals in the first four minutes of clock time in the third quarter from a combined 23 possessions. The Demons went from down 73-53 to up 89-80 late in the third. Then Matthew Coulthard gets subbed in for Ben Miller and immediately kicks a goal. It's his first career goal. And he had been on the ground for less than a minute, I believe. They were timed it at 55 seconds. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what Leggy said. Demons then kicked three behinds to open the fourth. Yvonne Soldo hits Cam McIntosh for the Tigers to tie it. They retake the lead on a really nice Noah Bolton off a of Shea Bolton center clearance. They moved Bolton yeah, all over and had tried Dylan Grimes more on Harris Petty. Still didn't work. But yes, Petty kicks his fifth to tie it with 13 minutes left. Melksham kicks his fourth a minute later. Then Petty hits his sixth off a snap. Had his first five all come from set shots? I know, I think at least four did. Maybe all five. There might have been one where, you know, they had numbers forward and he ended up 
on the receiving end of a handball or something, so I'm not certain. Then Chazi Pickett gets a couple of late goals. He earned a holding the ball against Nathan Broad that maybe could have been a high tackle, not entirely sure. It was that uh, Broad, I believe, put his arm up to try and fend it off and, and to try and draw some of the high contact as well. It's honestly kind of a Luke Shuey move. It was... I didn't mind the call at all. I thought he ducked a bit as well. So my in real time, I thought it was high. But looking at the replay, it's like, yeah, this could go either way. My opinion on this is, fuck yeah, Kazi. And then yeah, he snaps again a couple minutes later. Final score does not tell you what a fun and exciting game this was. It was back and forth. It was just Melbourne pulled away at the very end. But even now that you know what happened in this game, I highly recommend going back and watching it if you get the chance. Because this was just super fun. I was entertained. Jack Miney, game-high 32 disposals, 9 tackles, 7 clearances, gained 560 meters. Christian Batraka kicked 1-3 from 29 disposals, 13 score involvements, 8 clearances, 547 meters. He got 8 coaches' votes. Max Gaughan got the 10, and it was a perfect vote! Uh, Max Gaughan, I wish he had gotten his late snap to go through because it would have completed just an absolute masterpiece of a game. So instead of a goal, he had a behind, but 40 hitouts, 28 disposals, 22 contested possessions, 11 clearances, 10 score involvements, 541 meters game. Ed Langdon, 25 disposals. Angus Brayshaw, 22. Alex Neal Volan, a goal of 22 disposals. Jake Bowie, 15 disposals and 8 marks. And Harrison fucking Petty, 6 goals, 11 disposals, 10 marks. I can't believe that. Holy shit. He did not take the most goals of this round, but he is the player that stands out to me the most as just a dramatic goal kicker, even more than Tex, even more than Charlie Carno six. We have a lot of mean character candidates for this round. It's going to take multiple Twitter polls. I think we have a clear four, actually, and I'm probably giving my vote to Petty. I might too, but I'd love to hear what the other people, what other people say. Demons plus 28 on inside 50s. Just when Richmond had their good sequences, they got in and they scored. Demons also plus 14 on in outs. 25 more marks, including 10 more inside 50 because their tall forwards were pretty unstoppable without Bailey Fritch. No Bailey Fritch, no Clayton Oliver. This this performance with who was missing tells you just there's still another level that these guys can take it to. And that's why they are very much still in the hunt to win this play. Ugh. And the difficulty here is that Belkship was the one who came in for Fritch. What do you do when he's healthy? Good problems to have, at least. Shea Bolton had 25 disposals to lead Richmond. Kicked 1-2, 16 contested possessions, 8 clearances, 606 meters. He's doing this kind of thing week in and week out, so we shouldn't be as surprised by it anymore. Tim Durando, a goal from 24 and 9 clearances. No holy fuck out of him for this week, at least on camera. Jacob Hopper, 23 and 16 contested possessions. Dustin Martin kicked 3-2 from 21 and 11 score involvements. Another 20-plus disposal game for him, despite still playing mostly in the forward 50. Dion Prestia, goal from 21. Nick Flostone, 20 disposals, 15 intercepts, 8 marks, including 7 intercept marks. Remember, nobody's allowed to get 11 or Gil murders them. A much more sound game out of Tyler Young after being subbed out last week. He had 19 disposals and 11 intercepts. And Daniel Rioli takes 1-1 from 16 and 7 tackles. Versatility on display from him again. And then, or really while this game was going on, and then the second half was mostly... Afterward, you had a game out in Perth, and I still don't really know how to describe this one. Stephen, well, I still am going to go back and watch this game. There are actually three games this round that I have not watched and I'm going to in the coming days. 
those being Dodge Giants, Adelaide Showdown, and this one. West Coast 10-12-72, defeating North Melbourne 10-7-67. Judging by your impressions, you were like frustrated because they nearly blew a big lead even though they won. I don't think you should be frustrated because one, they won. Two, it ended up competitive and interesting and you got to feel something. I just, I feel so bad for Brett Ratton to go win lists. I think just the job he's done, like I've said, to keep them afloat has been awesome. Is he a good head coach? I don't know. I would probably rate him as like a four out of 10 as a head coach. At least, you know, most people's perceptions of head coaches and largely ours as well is, you know, you look at how the roster does, you look at expectations versus reality, like talent level versus results. And usually coaching is what accounts for the difference between the two. That said, he kept this thing together. He kept them competitive in all but a couple of games. There was only really like one where they really quit, I think. Or actually, that might have been a game I'm thinking of that was under Clarkson. So I think he's proven that he's a guy that you want to have at your football club. I don't know if he should be a head coach, but a good culture guy because he kept people from ripping each other's heads off at a time when things really could have gotten bad, at least publicly. You know, who knows if there's stuff behind closed doors? Like, you know, at every NFL training camp, there's wide receivers and defensive backs getting in fights because DBs like to talk a lot of shit and some receivers like to talk a lot of shit and almost all receivers are very, very sensitive. I hope he sticks around at Arden Street and I hope that North are able to elevate soon, but a game like this makes me makes me question a lot when you're up against an Eagles defense without Jeremy McGovern still. Tom Barris is out for the season. You've shown an ability to be able to get good forward deliveries to Nick Larkey in the past and Larkey was getting... Good position on Shannon Hurd. Yeah, Bogle was competitive with him, but Larky looked like he should have won that matchup more. And yet the kicks to him were were often so disappointing and North had some real trouble getting forward. Yes, the Eagles put on good pressure, but North, what the fuck? You really needed a four-goal Paul Curtis second quarter to draw you back into things? I mean, love that Curtis did that, but really? That was what it took? I think it's clear that Paul Curtis is among the list now of players that should be a part of things when North expect to contend again, just like Eddie Ford has cemented himself in that list. Oh, I already thought Curtis was going to be part of that. It just just very inconsistent. And, you know, he he's needed this sort of game for his own sake, for his own confidence. Probably I'm glad he got it. But this should have been a game that they were competitive in the whole way. Really, this game swung in every quarter. Four goals to one for the Eagles in the first quarter. They had a lot of uncontested control. Their first three goals all originated from the back half. And then they had some handballs that led to Jaden Hunt's goal. There was very little pressure from North and Brett Ratton sprayed him at quarter time. And that clearly worked because they worked it back to a seven-point margin at halftime. You had those four goals from Paul Curtis. And then they didn't score the third. 24-0 third quarter. A 3-6 third quarter. So it could have been a lot worse than 24-0. Yeah, a couple uncharacteristic misses in there, but the Eagles turned around with pressure of their own. That shift was evident right away in the second half. J.D. Cripps, no surprise, led the way there. Ended up with 11 tackles to go along with two goals from 18 disposals. But it was clearances where they managed to get control of this game again. North were plus 19 in the first half on clearances that that was the biggest margin at halftime for any game this season that the Eagles went plus eight in the third quarter using extra man at stoppages to really good success there Elijah Hewitt benefited from that a bunch he was 
One of the guys that was at those stoppages had a really nice goal running out of a stoppage and may have been stiff to not get the Rising Star nomination this week. Love the game that he played. And then the Eagles missed some chances to stretch out the lead more. A couple set shot misses from Oscar out in this game that were quite unexpected. And after Jack Williams is behind in the second minute of the fourth quarter, the Eagles did not score again, and they nearly fucking blew this. 38,000 people got to see a competitive game between two teams that don't play in many of them, and two teams that don't get to play in many competitive games got to play in front of 38,000 people invested in the game all the way to the finish. I think that's awesome. Oh, it, it is, and I'm glad that the Eagles kept the pressure with all the tackling that they put on inside 50 at the same time. I, I can't come out of this game overwhelmingly positive. They're still one of the bottom two teams. There's so much of a gap between the bottom two and Hawthorne, and then Hawthorne and the rest of the league. I'm, I'm very glad that they got this win, obviously. For some of the youngsters, it's their first win. Ryan Merrick didn't get a goal in this game, but super high work rate. Being part of the pressure, I hope he signs on. This guy has to stay around. And I was really surprised that on the older end, Elliot Yo was the sub, was brought in pretty early in the second quarter as a tactical sub for Rhett Basso and stayed there in the back six for most of the game. And it worked. And he ended up also getting the last uh, big kick of this game, getting the, the kick to Oscar Allen to mark to bleed out the last of the clock. I noticed in the notes you said Allen was banged up at one point. Glad he was able to finish the game. I loved his quotes earlier in the week. Like, this dude is so committed to this club. He's an Eagles lifer. Uh, earlier in the week, he mentioned, uh, I believe it was Mark Lacroix, who missed out on the 2006 flag, but stuck with the club for his whole career. I believe he had a 12-goal game at one point and went out with a premiership medal in 2018. The West Coast Eagles need to give Oscar Allen everything he wants and everything he deserves, which includes the captaincy. He was the stand-in captain for this game. Just give it to him now. Change the team name to the West Coast Oscar Allens if that's what it takes. Do literally everything for this man. This is like a fucking Cleveland Naps move, isn't it? Yes. Have the uh, the grounds crew or the curators, as they like to say, at Optists, like, make the pattern in the grass his face. It's like how the Swans did the special thing at the SCG for Buddy. Just make that permanent for Oscar Allen. Like, make his number 12 part of the logo. Tim Kelly and Dom Sheed both had 26 disposals. Kelly got nine coaches' votes from this game. 19 contested possessions, seven clearances at 510 meters. I'm glad that he's getting appreciated despite the ill-advised move of going away from Geelong to this Eagles mess. Sheed with nine marks as well. Andrew Gaff with 25 disposals has that more established role back in the 22 again after a week as the sub. I'm ambivalent about that, but whatever. Jaden Hunt kicked 1-1 from 25 and 7 marks. What a great presence he's been on the older part of the list, but has speed like a younger player still and a real full oval player. This was a sort of redemption game, I'd say, for Bailey J. Williams, considering how on him so many people were after round one and how he really cost them that game at Marvel Stadium. Are you some people? Uh, it wasn't just me, but in this case, I am some people. I'm part of some people. Didn't win the hitouts or anything. 24 of them, 23 disposals, 18 contested possessions. He was in the fight. He mattered in this win. Elijah Hewitt take 1-2 from 21. Shannon Hearn, 21, 9 marks and 9 score involvements, having to lead that back unit really on his own, and I guess with a bit of help from Elliot Yo And Liam Duggan with 20 and 9 marks, big part of the pressure as well. I am happy for 
this whole list for the guys who have been through this uh, premiership era to see a good result here and encouraging signs for a lot of the younger players. I just want, I'm, I'm trying to be more positive about this game than I am. I think back to a conversation I had with a high school basketball coach a couple years ago after his team had like a historically bad season by his standards. And he said, you know, it makes you appreciate winning more. And I think these guys are going to appreciate this. Inside 50s favored the Eagles 60 to 46. Hitouts favored North 55 to 33. Clearances 46 to 33 in North's favor. But they committed 17 more turnovers, 69 to 52. Nice. And the stat that the Eagles have gotten absolutely ripped on all tackled inside 50, they won them 26 to 5. That is the influence of J.D. Cripps, I believe. And inspiring them in that way, really in both 50s and throughout the Oval, especially without Shuey there to do it. On North side, Harry Sheasel, a behind off 31 disposals. Luke Davies, Uniac, a goal, 30 disposals, 8 clearances, 566 meters. Bailey Scott, 24 with 583 meters. Aiden Core, 535 from just 18 disposals. Was he like the main kickout guy or? Uh, it was often Sheasel doing that. Uh, and then they went out wide and core from uh, kind of the side of the defensive 50 or sometimes at the halfback flank kicking along. Todd Goldstein, 22 hitouts, 18 disposals. Usually the disposal numbers aren't so good. So that's nice to see. Uh, 14 contested possessions and eight clearances. Seemed like the connection between him and Tristan Jerry really worked. Jerry, two goals off 11 disposals and 33 hitouts. Had one of those fourth quarter goals that got me really worried. You mentioned Paul Curtis. He kicked those four in all in the second quarter, right? Yep. Overall, 4-1, 15 disposals and 13 contested. And Taron Thomas didn't do a ton but still managed eight tackles, shows what a high motor he has. And it's funny that we end the discussion for this game by thinking about that ending call, which I love. You know, we've seen the good and the bad of footy commentary this year at the AFL, but I love how Adam Papalia called the ending of this. Ecstasy for the Eagles, agony for North Melbourne, a streak is dead, and a streak lives on. Perfect representation of just the aftermath of this game. Neither of these teams had won since round two, and... Even with how frustrated I am at how this game ended, there definitely was some giddiness that the Eagles finally got this result. All right, time for our awards. Uh, Mark of the week and goal of the week. Last week, the voters got it wrong. Uh, Your round 19 mark of the week winner was Mitch Hinge, who took an intercept over his own teammate, Josh Worrell. It was good, but it should have been Jai Amos over a huge pack where he ended up getting on Tom McCartney's shoulder. Your round 20 nominee, you've got Jamie Elliott. The one he really took it on was Jacob Wiedering. Yeah, Jeremy Cameron over Joel Hamling. It was more a knee to the back than really getting up on his shoulders. And you had Oscar Allen over Luke McDonald, who like realized Allen was coming up behind and that Allen had gotten in front of the other man. But Donald had really good instincts to try to like shuffle over and get to him, but he ended up getting landed on, basically. I love that Allen one. He, he burned... He got steps on Ben McKay doing that, too. I thought McDonald tried to to almost lower himself to prevent it from happening, but Oscar did it anyway. I like that one best. I think Cameron's a clear third. Seeing something to go, Allen. Elliot's at the time, I didn't think it was that great because it was over a shoulder rather than, like, head and neck area, but it was still good. There's a big gap between the top two and the third. Let's be real. Elliot will win this. It's Collingwood. I don't know. I think I'll also go Allen. Goal of the week for round 19 was Toby Green just absolutely clouding the Suns' defense, blowing past Will Powell, getting onto a bouncing kick from Aaron Katman, and spinning past Mac Andrew before scoring. But Sam Powell-Pepper had that amazing 
opening goal, getting away from Nathan Murphy, putting a don't argue on Darcy Moore. And then Isaac Rankin wasn't even among the nominees with his work along the boundary on the give and go. So, I mean, this was wrong in multiple ways, but Sam Palapapper deserved that, sorry. Your nominees from this week all came from Saturday. You had the Michael Frederick goal that we talked about earlier, running onto Jordan Clark's kick into the 50, outrunning Tom Stewart and kicking that from that ridiculous angle. There was Errol Golden's one goal, crummy against Zach Merritt, and then beating him, Jane Laverty, and Andrew McGrath before snapping on the left. And a bit after that, he had Taylor Walker playing off for a free kick, geeking out O'Leary Lear and kicking his fourth of seven goals. I, I did, wouldn't think it was a big deal, but it was from 50, and it was on his left when he's normally a right-footed kick. I think it's more between Freddie and Golden, though. Oh, I do too, and I think I think it just goes in order. Frederick, Golden, bit of a drop-off, and then Walker. I can see Golden winning this vote. I could. Also, Frederick's just, when it came in the game and how much of a lift it gave to Frio, I think, I think that gives a little extra. Had Frio gotten the lead from that, or had they already been in front, I think we would have seen another Freddie backflip. Uh, main character, we do not have the winner yet. Obviously, Harrison Petty is a deserving candidate. That's who we're both backing in. But I think you could also make an argument for Charlie Curnow. You can make an argument for Toby Green. You can make an argument for Taylor Walker. You can make an argument for Dane Zorgo's nut. So we're going to have to do some voting to figure that out. So stay tuned for some Twitter polls, everybody. Yeah, some Twitter polls. And I forget if you could put polls in r slash afl but i'll i'll try to get reddit's input there as well for youtube yeah i got got a lot of great candidates for this week mostly relating to goal scoring and uh but we'll get those results to you probably for the round 21 recap but i have a feeling this is running pretty long and we both got places to be especially you ethan so let's close up this episode i'm on twitter at benjamin hk01 brian arambe the footy cat on instagram at cat named brian he is slept through this entire episode somehow i am on twitter at castle media we are on twitter at americans footy we'll see you again soon